My hope this morning is that you would experience new life for being here. And I don't believe it's too much to hope for that you would respond to the spirit of God here among us so that you would be like a person who had been asleep but then was awoken to new life. Or that you would find yourself called out of the shadows where you've been languishing into the light and your eyes would be opened as if for the first time. That you would be like a prisoner who suddenly comes to see that the bars that had been holding you are broken and there's no need to be there anymore. In fact, you can go out into the freedom that God himself has given you. Can you tell that I'm already a bit jazzed up? I hope for these things because God has given me that hope. Because I stand before you as a person who once and again has been born anew by God's grace. And I know it's not too much to hope for, but rather we should expect it. This morning, we come to the very end of our study on the subject of the Holy Spirit. We've been at this for about two months. Uh, We will finish today with a blessing, with a benediction, a good word, Uh, The Apostle Paul, who's been our teacher, especially for these months, it was his regular practice when he addressed the community in the New Testament, in the letters that he wrote, you will find that he often ends with the pronunciation of a blessing over the people that he hopes will grow, will have new life because of his work. And so this morning we finish with his benediction toward the end of the letter that he wrote to the church in Rome. Uh, In Romans 15, after doing everything he could to teach about God's grace and love and righteousness and power and mercy, Paul closed with this hope that he expressed for the people that he knew there in that community who, like we are, were seeking to know the living Lord Christ and follow after him. And it was his prayer for them, and it is my prayer for you. Now listen to the words of Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul wanted for the people that he knew in Rome. And this is God's word for these people here in Summit. Namely, that as a community of people who are growing in faith, we should realize the, the treasures of God's own spirit within us. And those should contribute to our character changing from the community we were into a community that is abundantly filled with three things. And they are there in his benediction and they will be our focus this morning. First is joy. The uncomplicated lightness of being which reaches deeper than every single one of life's disappointments. Have you got any disappointments in life? Secondly, peace. The cooperation amongst people who in their mutual regard choose to stay together despite their differences, which are many, but not as meaningful as that which binds them together. Do you see that we have lots of differences in the world today? And then thirdly, hope. An unshakably positive outlook on the future, which is utterly defiant of the circumstances in which you find yourself, which make it hard for you to go on hoping, like a light in the darkness, which no matter how dark it is, can never, ever overcome that light. These three should be the expectation of God's people in Rome and in Summit 
as the gift which God chooses to give with his presence, and they should be our goal. As the things toward which we work, trusting that the Spirit has empowered us for these three. Can you see that in our own day, all three of these are terribly lacking everywhere we look? Do you know that? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Do you know that any community that was characterized by these would be outstanding in a literal sense? It would stand out from every other gathering. Joy. Everywhere you look, there is the kind of desperate anxiety that's pulling people down and making them emphatically anxious. Do you see that? Imagine a community where when others look, they said, well, one thing stands out. They're sure a joyful gathering. How about the second one there, peace? We live in a time of unprecedented divisions where everybody has their own style, their own ideas, their own political viewpoints, their own ethical uh, issues that define them against others and everyone wants to divide up. Imagine what it would look like if we got along and stayed together. And then it's not hard to note how little hope there is in the world. All you need to do is overhear someone talking in the coffee shop. I do this every day. I listen in on your conversations. It doesn't look good down the road, does it? Imagine a community which was filled with joy and peace and abounding in hope. What Paul means to indicate here at the end of this exposition of the gospel is to teach you personally, every one of you who is working at believing in us all together as a community, is this is what we should expect together. We should expect that the Spirit is actually filling us with joy and with peace and we're abounding in hope so that we shine like a light in the darkness so that we're like a a city on a hill and we're surrounded by dark bleakness but we still burn bright and others can see and because of it, they're attracted to the one who has made us so. And this morning, what I want to see, not only for us to learn but for us to begin to give ourselves to is that these three characteristics are in fact the consequence not of our trying hard harder or are learning something different, but a consequence of the power of the spirit within us that we should expect to abound in hope as God fills us with joy and peace. How? The answer is in this phrase, which we must begin with, which is in believing. Uh, Paul trusts that when a community of individuals all together begins to give itself to faith or, or when any Uh, Any person, their heart awakens and they begin to believe. He trusts that there's a a treasure that God gives then. And it's the consequence of believing. And so we wanna start with believing and be precise here. The word believing here is sometimes translated faith in the New Testament. They're used similarly, belief, faith. In Greek, the word is pistuo. And it is a word which has two elements always. And if it doesn't have both, then it's not what it actually means On the one hand, pistuo involves content. There is the content of belief, and then right beside the content of faith is the commitment of faith. Both go together, and without one, the other is meaningless. Let's start with the content of believing. Uh, In the simplest way to put it, the content is a matter of the specific ideas which comprise Christian faith. What Christians believe, the truth claims which Christians affirm. For the the opening chapters of the book of Romans, Paul goes to every length to say, here is what Christians believe in terms of content. 
The world in its beautiful complexity reveals the hand of a loving creator. And anyone who opens their eyes can see it. That's a part of the content of Christian faith. And yet when we look at the world, we see that there's a problem. We can see it in the way that people turn in instead of outward, the way that people are monstrous to each other. That's a problem. That's also a part of the content of Christian belief, which Paul unfolds. We may want to blame others for the trouble, but the moment we do, we implicate ourselves, showing that we don't understand that every one of us is guilty of this monstrous problem, which is ruining planet Earth. The theological word for it is sin. We may wish that it was others, but deep down we all know we're all a part of turning away from God to our own detriment in a way that ruins this world. All of us are sinners. That's another part of the content of Christian faith. Every one of us, let me make this personal, this man right here would be altogether lost and hopeless in his own disobedience, even though he tries every day his best, if not for the righteousness of God. If not for the fact that God looks at me and instead of feeling angry, feels pity because he loves me so much that he would in Christ become the new Adam who comes into the world to cancel the effects of the old Adam's disobedience for me and for every single person, whoever was born, who is, who, or whoever will be by choosing in the new Adam, this Christ, to take on the curse of disobedience of humanity forever for him to die on the cross. Why? Out of love for me so that I could be rescued. All I have to do is believe. And that's also a content of the Christian faith. It's magnificent, isn't it? God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will anyone ever dare to die for a righteous person. But this is what God has done. And that is the content of the Christian faith. And Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again. So now anyone who is believing in this content can trust also that the spirit of Christ is within her. Believe. If you've never believed that, would you please believe it this morning? Choose to say in your mind, I believe that I'm a, a wreck and a loss without this grace, but it's come to me and rejoice in that. Believe it. That's the content of belief. It's the first part. The second part, which always has to accompany it, if it's in believing in the sense that the Bible uses it, is the commitment of faith. This can never be simply a mental assent that doesn't change you. It always results instead in the decision, joyfully, to finally say, I trust God completely. And, and let me show you what it looks like. There's a small girl, she's four years old. She's climbed all the way to the top of a 60-foot pine tree in flip-flops and her Sunday dress. Church is about to begin. Someone goes inside and tells her father, your daughter's stuck up in a tree. And he walks out and he sees her up there and he climbs all the way as high as he can get to the very top, but he can't go all the way up there. The branches are too thin. And he says to her, dear, I'm here for you. Let go and let me catch you. I will carry you down. And the commitment of faith is her decision to believe in her father and let go, trusting that he will catch her and rescue her. And that also is faith. It is your 
It is your decision at the end of the tunnel, which you've gotten to, only to find that there's no light there because you've always been running from God, to say, okay, God has climbed all the way to the top of this tree and now it's time for me to let go and let him rescue me in every way that anyone ever could be rescued. I know I need to be rescued emotionally and and physically and spiritually and mentally in every way and I even know that I don't understand how many ways I need to be rescued. And it's a decision to let go of the branches so that God himself can rescue you. And I want you to understand that if you will not let go, and trust God in that second way in the commitment of belief. You will always be stuck in the tree that you've climbed up into and you can't get down. But when, listen now, when the content of belief is the true gospel of Jesus Christ, then the commitment of belief is the only reasonable decision. And so if you're hearing the content and your heart is saying, maybe I should believe, then by all means believe. And the reason that Paul could write to this community in Rome as he did with this austere hope that they should be filled with these three characteristics that no other groups have is because he knew that the moment they began to believe even a little bit, and I assure you of this promise as well, that you will be filled with what finishes the text there, the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the power of God's own indwelling presence in you, the creator who made the universe in you. Not because you've made him be there, but because that's how God has decided to be. And I'm telling you that that's true. And I I end this teaching on the spirit with you this morning with this because of all things, this is what I hope for. It is that we would all, that Renaissance Church would be known as a community that is believing. That in believing is filled with this power of the spirit, which means that those characteristics are ours and they shine out of us. Let's take our time through each one. The first is joy. The way Paul puts it, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Not some joy, not just a little bit here and there when the sermon gets especially inspiring, but may God fill you with joy. In Greek, the word is kara. Now, last week I taught about the spiritual gifts. And in Greek, the word gift is charismata. And the root word, which becomes gift is the same root in Greek that becomes grace. And it's the same word that gets translated in this word here, joy. They're all from the same word family. And the reason for that is that they're related to one another, not just in the way they sound, but in what they convey. Think about this. A gift is only something that matters once you receive it, open it and begin to use it. And I want you to understand this. The joy that the spirit means to build into us is just the same. It is a gift that God gives, but we ourselves are responsible for opening it and experiencing it. Have you ever met someone who seems singularly gifted at never, ever being joyful? Right? Here, here there's a sense that God is in us to enable us to be joyful in the way that a gift enables you to have something you couldn't otherwise have. Grace is just the same. Grace is given by God in a way that regards your humanity with the dignity that you deserve as a person who has agency. God will not force you. His grace is like an open arm that says, come to me and then I'll embrace you and you'll feel my warmth and you'll be overwhelmed. And how can you be grumpy after that? 
Again, it's God's invitation to joy. Joy is more than happiness and pleasure. It's not less than those two things. God wants us to be glad and happy and pleased, but it's far more than them. It's qualitatively different than those fleeting and fickle emotional moods. You can see the way that joy spreads when someone is so glad that it radiates from them and you want to be around it and it's inspiring and moving. And when your eyes well up with tears, even though everything is right, or rather because everything is right. Have you ever cried because you're so unbelievably relieved or happy? Has that happened to you? That is joy. This is what it looks like. I want you to imagine this. It's February 1973. The United States is sick of a war that went far too long. There are 500 pilots who are being held prisoner in Vietnam. And their families are wondering, are they alive? They don't know. But they've been released because at last, after a terrible bombing campaign in Christmas of 1972, surrender, and now these men are going to be returned. And the cameras are in the den of a family who are gathered around their television set as airplanes are landing in the Philippines. And everyone in the living room is staring at the TV, wanting to know, is he on the plane or not? I watched this on a documentary recently. The camera shows a father with his son, or excuse me, with his grandson on his lap. And that grandfather is looking at the TV to see if his son is there. And that little boy who's 10 years old and he hasn't seen his dad for maybe five years, his, his eyes are welling with tears because he knows maybe my dad's gonna get off that plane. And then the camera pans over and all the people on the couch are just the same. Their faces are twisted up with a mixture of hope and terror. His sister and his brother are there. And then there's a woman who's on the floor in her Sunday best. And she's holding a hanky over her mouth because maybe her husband, who she hasn't seen for five years, will be alive on that plane. And then the door opens. And they pan back to the, to the other boy, the two of them. And then you hear the shrieks of their mom. She says, it's him. He's alive. He's there. And then she says, oh, baby. And the camera goes to her and she 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 comes up to the TV as if she could embrace it and feel the, the embrace of her husband who is alive. She couldn't, she didn't know. And then the camera goes over to the grandfather and he is nodding with the power of the world on its axis because he's finally satisfied to know the long nightmare is at an end. We've awoken from this terrible dream and my son is alive. This little boy's dad is coming back. This woman's husband has been spared. The enemy has been thwarted. Every threat has been lifted. Pardon me. <laughs> That's joy. That's what joy is. And what Paul believes is that the content of the Christian faith comes to every man and woman to say, whatever nightmare has been dogging your life so that you can't experience the joy that God wants you to have, trust me, God has overcome it completely. Whatever loss you've had that makes you lonely and empty in a way I couldn't even dream this morning, whatever that is, God will one day restore what you've lost. Whatever fear you have of the future, God says, in truth, I am stronger than death itself. There's nothing that can ever separate me from your love. You are my beloved daughter and child. And by faith, you are mine. There's nothing that you ever have to fear. It bring every single problem that you've ever dared to face in your life right now into this church and see it as nothing at all compared to the grace and power of God. And when you believe that, you feel joyful, so joyful you cry and you have to wipe your nose more than once in front of a large group of people. 
you are invited to believe. If you don't know the things of which I speak, read carefully in Romans in the book. Read what Paul writes in Romans 4 and Romans 5. And if you can't understand it, and a lot of it will be tricky, ask someone who does. Say, help me understand what I'm supposed to believe. And when you see it, joy will be the consequence. Let's look at the second thing that Paul hopes for for them after speaking of joy. May the God of hope fill you, he goes on to say, with peace. Paul follows the first characteristic of joy with this second because he knows, listen now, nothing is more corrosive to joy than the absence of of peace. Think of that for a moment. Do you know that? That you can be really joyful and then suddenly realize, and yet I'm at war with that other person in my life and the joy just goes away. That you can be glad and happy for the church that you're a part of, but then there's a fight that erupts in the church and people who used to be with each other turn against each other and then suddenly the joy disappears and then the world looks at the church and says, ah, I see, it's all a sham. They're just like every other part of planet Earth where we divide up and fight with each other because we don't see the world in the same way. I think that if it makes you sad that Christians can't get along over the things which they divide up over, you are just beginning to understand a tiny bit of the heart of God because I believe God's heart breaks when the Christians who are united by the most magnificent news in the world choose to divide up over things that they can't see eye to eye on. In Rome, the reason that Paul said in Rome in chapter 15 that God should fill you with peace is because in that community of faith where people believed in Jesus together, the church was dividing up over two issues, which seemed to the people in the church on both sides to be issues that were central to faith. And as soon as they started to fight, Paul knew that they stopped looking like Jesus and they compromised their ability to be a witness and joy could never live there. And so he urged them to accept the gift of peace from the spirit. If you know the book of Romans well, you'll know this in the 14th chapter, Paul addresses himself to two issues. One is food laws, and the other is the celebration of holy days. Now, am I right that most of us don't have a strong stake in either one of those from a religious point of view? Is that true? And so it may seem remote to us, but think for a moment of the thing that you believe strongly, and you're scandalized that other people who call themselves Christians don't agree with you, and it makes you want to push them away. And now you'll know where the people in Rome were when Paul wrote this. This is critical. Listen, there were a contingency of people in Rome who considered themselves as a part of an essentially Jewish community that had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And as a result, they believed that they should still be under the food and holy day regulations of the people of God. And right beside them in the same church, there were Gentile Christians who said, no, the gospel frees us from everything, including that. And both groups thought that the other group had compromised something absolutely critical to true faith. And as a result, they were behaving in a way that was the exact opposite of peace with each other. Do we still do that nowadays? We do. This is what they were doing. And read it in Romans 14. First, they were judging each other. That people in one group were saying that other group is not true to faith. They're not real Christians. And Paul said, you are not the judges. God is. Don't judge each other. And he had to say that to people on both sides. They were They were condemning one another. They were saying nasty things about each other because they were saying, look, they compromised the true faith. Again, Paul was saying, stop it. Don't do that. 
Who are you to judge the servant of another? You're both servants of God's. They were actually deciding not to welcome one another any longer. And the church was threatening to break apart because they couldn't see eye to eye. And what Paul told them was, listen to me, welcome one another in the same way that God in Christ has welcomed you. And if you know the content of belief, then you know that I've been welcomed by God, not because I get it right with all of the issues that Christians are very serious about. God shows his love for in us, I, I, excuse me, for us in that, I said this already, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. And so the call then was to set aside those things over which they were inclined to divide so that they could embrace more emphatically those things which united them. And the one thing which united them all was that God had decided to love every one of them and welcome them into his family, even as they got it wrong. Do you see that? Can I make this specific for us? In our own time, we have a church right now in this room where there are different ideas that are very important to us over which we don't see eye to eye. And some of those ideas will feel central to faith for us. For instance, we have different convictions here about the proper relationship between faith and politics. Do you want me to talk about politics? No, you don't. We have different ideas here about how you're supposed to interpret the Bible. And some of those ideas will feel very important and we'll have learned to think that if people disagree, they shouldn't be here with us. We will have different stances on ethical issues which are extraordinarily divisive today in society all around us. But here Paul is saying, don't also be like the world and live at war with each other, be at peace even though you disagree about immigration or about taxation or about foreign policy or about the relationship between government and business. Maybe the most divisive that you can't see eye to eye on sexuality. Do you know that the enemy wants us to divide up over every one of these so that we stop showing the world peace, which is ours not, get this, not because we have the right ideas, which we should, but rather because the one whose ideas matter most, God Almighty, omnipotent, has looked at us and said, yes, I want them in my family, even with all of their petty self-righteousness and all of their mistakes, because I am the Lord of all and the God of grace. I get to decide who sits at my table, and they're all welcomed. Ah, (laughs) And I I sigh like that because I try my best to be right and I still get it wrong. And I still have a seat at the table because the God of peace has decided to welcome me. And all of you, that's the second thing that we should expect and work for together is that we should be a community that is full of peace. Look at the last one, one more time. May the God of hope fill you, and this is different than the others, so that you may abound in hope. Uh, Abounding does not just mean be filled up with, it means be so overflowing with hope that it spills out of you so that it's hard for people to be around you and not be affected by your hope, which inspires them and makes them go on hoping even for many days and many nights. It's just been dark for them. You're like a warm fire and they wanna come close so that it spreads to their own heart because they're bleak. That's what Paul wants them to understand. They should expect and work for together as a community. Why hope? Listen, 
Paul understood as well as anyone can what it means to go through life in which your circumstances are utterly hopeless. And I want you to understand that there is a realism to the content and commitment of Christian faith that refuses to pretend that things aren't as bad as they are. Some of you have had to face difficulties that make it impossible for you to hope. Some of you are in the midst of that right now. And I know this because you are dear to me and I've listened and then I've prayed for you. In my office this week, do you remember the afternoon where it was snowing? And and the last time it snowed, I was here in my office. Remember that last time? It took me two and a half hours to go one mile. But I decided to stay this afternoon because I wanted to be stuck there because I wanted to think about what I would say to you this morning. And I started to think of the most hopeless things that a person can think of. I thought of those of you who have marriages that are falling apart and you, you want to move into the dark because that's how hopeless you are. Or those of you who have children who you love and your children are suffering and you can't do anything to change it. Or those of you who have friends who have turned on you and have been mean to you in school instead of kind. I thought of those of you who are at church by yourself instead of with your spouse because your spouse is gone. I thought of the thing that I think is the hardest thing to think of, which is those parents who have lost their children. And then in my mind, I thought of 18 of you who I've met in these two years who have been at the funeral of your own child in this this church. And I thought, is there any hope there? And I can't even imagine how I would face that if not for the one and only thing that truly gives hope, which is the presence of the spirit within us that says the story's not over yet. The power of the spirit within us that says, yes, because I became a human being in Christ and I walked the lonely road of being betrayed by my friends and seeing my hopes disappear and and, and being misunderstood by my own community and rejected and judged by the people that I came to love. And because I know what it's like in person, God can say this because of Christ, to be nailed to the cross and, and confused with a criminal when I was humanity's most benevolent force ever. I know that because God can say that. Then he can say to me and to you, no matter where you are, no matter how bleak it is, I know, and I'm with you. And trust me now, the story's not over yet. So that Paul, who believed this in his own suffering, could write in the letter to the Roman church, look, we suffer all day long, but I'm going to tell you this, that in all these things, we're not only victorious, we're more than conquerors because of God and Christ who loved us and gave himself for us so that I can tell you with assurance that there's nothing in all creation that ultimately can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not famine, not hardship, not sword, not peril, not even a spirit. If there are demons out there, they can't do it either. Sin can't, death can't even do it because this present suffering is not even worth comparing to the glory that is about to be revealed to us, Paul could write. And what he meant by that is the truth of the future, even though to you is strictly speaking unknown. And you have no idea what's going to happen with your son. You don't. And you don't know what's going to happen with that thing you've been trying to work at or how people are going to receive you. You don't know. You don't know what's going to happen in this place or anything. You don't really know it. God knows that in the end, the night is finally going to be over and that God will be with us and all the tears will be wiped away. And everything that came up against God's will, every wicked, evil, ugly thing, every every 
misdeed, all malevolence will be utterly thwarted and routed. It will look the fool which it is and God's power and goodness and grace and joy and peace will be forever and forever. And you know one thing that won't be anymore? Hope. We won't need to hope because we'll have it all right there. Do you see it? Believing this, both the content of it and then committing yourself to it means that you accept the invitation of the power of the Spirit in you. Not to see everything change in the way that you've always wanted it to right now, but to be so, uh, so filled with confidence about the one who gave himself for you and now lives within you that there is literally nothing that can press you down. If this is hard for you, Welcome to the community, please listen now, the community to which this promise initially was given. When Paul wrote these words, he wrote it to a gathering. And that means that we ourselves are invited all together to be the community that welcomes and receives the treasure of God's own spirit within us and then does the work that we're invited to do to be a community of joy and a community of peace and a gathering of hope. Imagine just for a moment, what it would look like to the world around us if when people thought of Renaissance Church, they said, you know, that's a place where people are joyful and where they're at peace with others with whom they differ. They're, they're welcomed. And, and, and my goodness, are they a hopeful gathering? Uh, if that were us, then we would look like the God who has promised to fill us. And that is what we're invited to. And that is what I want with all of you more than anything else. To be the gathering who because of the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us is filled with joy and with peace and with hope. Let's pray and thank God together. God, we love you. We thank you so much for the gift of your word which teaches us how to see and then receive the gift of the treasure that you've chosen to put within us. God, would you take the words that I've shared and the thoughts and the feelings that each and every person in here has experienced and pull them all the way down into the depths of our heart so that there they take root like a good seed and that they grow and bear fruit, the fruit of joy and peace, the fruit of hope in a world which is utterly bereft of all three so that we become the light that shines in the darkness that attracts others not to ourselves but to you. And God, would your kingdom expand please through us. Would you make this only the beginning of a movement of your spirit in which your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your love is poured out like the rain that watered our earth this morning, but more abundant still. And God, would we see with gladness and with joy the way that you bring many who are far away to yourself. And would we receive them as brothers and sisters in this ever-expanding family? And then would you make us mighty for love in the world? We pray for this in Jesus' name.